If you are a guest with us and you've got little ones and you'd like to register them and check them into children's ministry, you can do so right now. We would love to serve you in that way. If you go out into the hallway, you can check your kids in and we can get you set up for the morning. As they're gathering in the back, you can turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 6. So turn with me to Galatians chapter 6. We are completing our series in the book of Galatians this morning. So beginning in January, we started working our way through this incredible letter that Paul wrote to the churches in Galatia. And now we have our final message. So this will conclude our sermon series. Before we read the text, just let me begin with a word of prayer. Lord, we again recognize that the preaching of your word, because it is your word, because it is inspired, because your spirit moves in the preaching of your word, is a significant means of grace to your people. And Lord, we want to be mindful of the truths of this letter. Lord, we've spent weeks now working our way through what you wanted to communicate to us through the pen of Paul. And so God, we want your help now in remembering. And not just hearing, but being changed by your word. So Lord, I pray that you would grant supernatural help far beyond my ability that would call to mind all that you have taught us in this letter, Lord, that we would remember the great themes, the clarity of your gospel, and the implications of your gospel for our lives together. Lord God, would you do those things this morning in our midst, that Jesus might be glorified. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, turn with me to Galatians 6, beginning in verse 11. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised, that they may boast in your flesh. But that, but far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world, for neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them, and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Well, I remember coming home from college after my freshman year. And so, not only have you spent your first year away from home, you're you're 18, you're officially quote-unquote an adult, right? And for me anyway, I was four and a half hours away up in the Twin Cities, and now I'm returning home for the summer, and all of my friends from high school are returning home from their colleges, and we all think we're pretty important. We all think that we've arrived, essentially. But we get back together, and you're quickly reminiscing with friends you haven't seen in months, and a strange thing started to happen. As we're reminiscing, and oh, it's so great to see you, and there's hugs and all that stuff, a comparison game started happening. And, and people inevitably are asking about, how'd your year go? And being an immature 18-year-old, I took that as an invitation 
to describe to them just how awesome, not just my college experience, but my college was. And not, not that they wanted to know that, but as they asked how my year had been, I began to describe just how sweet the school was that I went to. And in doing so, really not so subtly explaining to them how come my school was so much better than their school. You ever experienced something like that? You sit there, and I remember some of the conversations would detail, and it was so obvious what we were doing, because as soon as you start to do that, the person you're talking to starts to respond in kind. Well, yeah, in my school, and you're listing off the, the reasons why your school is so great. And so, well, I've got this professor, and, and he went to Harvard, right? Well, I've got this professor, and he wrote this great book. And all these reasons why my school was superior. Just blatant, outright boasting. Trying to establish my own prestigiousness and superiority over that of my friends. And we kind of chuckle about it because we did it as 18-year-olds. But as adults, we just do it in a little more careful ways, right? Some of us have maybe bumper stickers touting the honor students in our home. We think of ways where we can establish the significance of what we've accomplished. We find ways to boast. Well, at the conclusion of the letter, Paul has poured himself out. He's fought for his gospel. He's challenged the Galatians in their beliefs and the way they live out those beliefs. And so now, in the final paragraph, he's making his closing plea. He even spells out that he's no longer using his scribe. His amanuensis, this, this guy who he basically dictates the letter to. He says, I'm taking up the pen myself. You see, I'm writing in my own hand. And he says, you notice how, how big the letters are? In other words, he's saying this is the first century version of in bold, in italics, and underlined. I want you to pay attention to what I'm writing. I'm passionate about this. I'm serious about it. He wants to review the major points he's proclaimed in the letter. And he wants to do it now through the lens of boasting. Kind of a funny way to bring the letter to a conclusion, isn't it? To talk about boasting. But he's very strategically using the concept of boasting for this reason. Boasting expresses worship. Boasting expresses worship. And everyone boasts. You know, we kind of chuckle when we hear a story about an 18-year-old returning from college and trying to brag about how awesome his college experience is. But we all have little ways where we do similar things in other parts of life. And Paul acknowledges even his own boasting in this passage. And by implication, he's calling us to boast in a similar way. He also calls attention to the boasting of his opponents and warns us against their practice. But here's the bottom line. Everyone should be boasting about something. I think Paul is saying that here. You should be boasting. Now, the content of that boasting matters. But the reason why we boast is because we worship. The reason people find things to boast in is because we were created to worship. In other words, we were made for glory. We were made to experience and be satisfied with excellence, with beauty, with wonderful things. We're designed with a hardwired need to value the excellent and praiseworthy things. So, you see this even in the meaning of the word. The word that we see as boast in our text literally means to exalt and glory in something. 
you exalt it. You glory in it. You worship it. So our boasting is simply an expression of our worship. We boast in what we worship. Now, consider just two passages that connect boasting and worship. In Psalm 97, speaking of the negative, we see this. All worshipers of images are put to shame who make their boast in worthless idols. Clearly, Paul says, people who boast in the flesh, who are given to boasting in the wrong things, inevitably fear persecution. Verse 12, it is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Now, this touches closely on number two, doesn't it? One of the reasons they abuse other members of the community is because they want to insulate themselves from persecution. So in this context, we want to make you become circumcised because then this old people that we were a part of, who we still want to kind of impress, who value circumcision, will still think much of us. But also, we want you to be circumcised because we don't want to get any flack from them. We don't want to receive any difficulty from them. We don't want to have hardship come our way because you're doing something they look down upon. So, in Paul's context, they fear the retaliation of the Jewish community. And they use Gentile believers as collateral damage to keep themselves from suffering for Christ. Here's Paul's point. By avoiding persecution, they've revealed their hearts. They didn't just flee suffering, Paul's saying. They've fleed the cross of Christ. You see the implication there? By fleeing the suffering of the cross, the suffering that comes from Christ, they're fleeing from Christ Himself. They've avoided the offense of the cross by promoting circumcision. And they did it because they feared man more than they feared God. And when we boast in things outside of Christ, it often reveals an unwillingness to be identified with Christ. An unwillingness to risk shame and the suffering of the cross. But Paul warns us explicitly in Galatians 5.2. If you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. In verse 4, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. And we see now in chapter 6, one of the reasons why they're tempted this way is because they fear persecution. Paul says, if your fear of persecution leads you to boast in things outside the cross of Christ, you risk being cut off from Christ. That's what's happening in Galatia. These men so intent upon comfort, so intent upon reputation, fearing what their neighbors might say about them or might do about them, actually give up their allegiance to Christ. Now, that's a particularly dangerous temptation in our context, which is to say, here in America today. There is an increasing cost to those who would follow Christ. As more and more of our culture drifts further and further away from the historical moral groundings that defined us, moral groundings that were tethered to Christianity, that, that distance creates pressure. Now it's no longer assumed that what the Bible teaches as right and wrong are right and wrong, correct? Now you might get passed over for the promotion at work if you don't sign on the line of what your company says is okay. More than that, you might get fired. 
there might be specific difficulties that come your way because you decide to stand with Christ in the face of a culture that is quickly drifting from Him. And so Paul wants us to see and recognize that's evidence of boasting. You want to boast in the wrong things. You want to boast in being friends with the right people. You care more about boasting in your career, your career advancement, the identity you get from your job, than you do about the possible suffering and persecution and sacrifice that comes from remaining steadfast in your boast for Christ. That's a dangerous game to play. The final characteristic of those who boast in the wrong thing, who boast in the flesh, is that they promote religion. That sounds funny, doesn't it? They promote religion. Well, here's what I mean by that. The circumcision proponents in Galatia are obsessed with outward religious activities and not the heart. So they're obsessed with the wrong kind of religion. Obsessed with the things you do that make you appear religious without really being concerned for the reality and need of inner change. They were what Jesus referred to as whitewashed tombs. That's some living imagery, right? Tomb is just full of death and decay. But hey, we'll, we'll, we'll throw some paint on the outside. We'll dress it up and it'll look nice. It looks so decorative. Well, from the outside, it does look nice. But inside, it's completely messed up. That's what those who boast in the flesh do. They give themselves and promote religious activity. They promote the outward appearance of morality. They promote the outward appearance that my life has it all together, that I'm doing all the right things, and completely miss the need for inner heart change. They promote religion over grace because religion is controllable and it's easy to identify. But it's also shallow. Paul shows it's works-oriented and it's not life-giving. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, the cross of Christ destroyed the equation religion equals happiness. Those who boast in the flesh are doing everything they can to still prop up that equation. That religion, works, man's devices can lead us to satisfaction. So people who value performance and ritual and verifiable actions over true heart change, Paul says, do not do not value the gospel. Their communities function in destructive ways. The gospel rejoices in the fact that Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. That there is peace with God, not through moral performance, but through the provision of Christ. Remember these themes we've seen again and again in Galatians. And so with it, with the gospel, with the taking away of our curse because of Christ taking it, Condemnation is gone. Dread is gone. And so is this need to measure up. Paul shows us, the Gospel says, you can't measure up. If by measuring up you're trying to show you're worthy of salvation, you can't do it. That's gone. That, that exists with the law. Measuring up is the category that exists for those who want to boast in the flesh. They want to maintain and establish things that allow them to measure themselves against others. 
in order to boast in my flesh, I have to keep track of how I'm doing, right? I have to keep track of how much better I am than that person, how much superior I am to that one, how close I'm getting to another one. Men who boast in and promote the flesh can't operate in a community that is marked by the nature of the gospel. And so what they do is they work to reestablish old categories. In a community where the gospel is flourishing, this measuring up junk doesn't exist because that's not of the gospel. But if you're of that mind, you exist in one of those gospel communities and you try and reestablish the old categories. I have to figure out how I measure up and how I stack up. And what it creates is a culture of negative analysis. A culture of negative analysis just reeks of people trying to establish a way to boast in their flesh. I have to negatively assess the deficiencies of others. Because as I'm able to assess them and keep track of their deficiencies and keep that running tally, it gives me a means of recognizing how loudly I can boast. They measure others by the law so they can continue to prop up that boasting they so desire. Well, a gospel culture, a culture of the cross, it doesn't thrive off of negative analysis. It thrives off of grace. It looks at a brother and instead of noting infirmities and deficiencies and taking note of them and throwing them in a brother's face, it's more quick to recognize and acknowledge grace. To see growth and encourage someone with it. To rejoice in evidences of holiness. To see in your sister ways that you've watched her mature in Christ and draw her attention to it. Rather than to note in your sister all the areas where she still hasn't matured enough and throw it in her face. The world and the cross stand since the fall in utter estrangement. The world promotes the first Adam and holds up his worthiness to know the secret things of God. Remember that was Adam and Eve's temptation? There's secret things that God knows that you don't know, but you deserve to know them. You created things. You deserve to know everything the Creator knows. How can God withhold that from you? Well, the world promotes that mentality that says, yes, I should know everything. I should be like God. And to support this illusion, the fallen world and its would-be kings must construct elaborate, fortified, and creative temples from which to boast. So what do those things look like? What are the things that we create and manipulate? I mean, some of these things are not bad things in and of themselves to become platforms of our boasting. Well, there's a plethora of them. People take voting records and political parties as standards of boasting, establishing their superiority to someone else. The illustration we already gave, education, degrees, Professors, my professors are more prestigious than yours. The school I went to is more prestigious than yours. I'll never forget I had a professor in seminary who 
joked about kind of playing this game for a while until he realized once he had got his PhD, he, he kind of thought he had arrived at the prestige category. And he said, then I realized I got my PhD at a school that wasn't prestigious enough. So I thought I had played the game perfectly until I got into that new category and realized the school that I had gotten my prestigiousness at was on the low rung of prestigiousness. We, we try and create structures for boasting from our vocation, right? What do you do? Sometimes it's just an innocent question. If somebody really wants to know, they want to get to know you. Sometimes that's a loaded question. What do you do? Are you important? Are you worth knowing? Are you worth me getting to know so that I, I can become a part of your influential field? People want to boast in that. You ever filled out one of those online applications for something and there's title and you click on it? And it's like, there's like 40 things that come in that scroll down thing. There is a title for everything because people want a title. I want to boast in my title. Yes, I'm Joe Schmo the sixth. There were six Joe Schmoes in my family before me. So that is some kind of prestigiousness that I can boast in. There's like the reverend, and then there's the very right reverend. Wow. I hear I thought reverend was prestigious. I thought that was something to boast in, but then there's the very right. Well, that's a whole other level. We can make our theology a structure for boasting. Good theology is important, good theology matters but it shouldn't become something you flaunt in someone else's face. Even something like a desire to be cross-centered, to be gospel-centered, we can twist and manipulate into a structure for boasting. So close to the truth, yet with a twisted heart so far away. Children and families. There's some... There's some Met a, met a guy once and just conversations. Oh, how many kids do you have? Two. Oh, your quiver's not quite full yet. <laughs> you know, you're not quite there yet. Talk to me when you got seven or eight. Well, what happens when he meets the family with 16? But we do that, don't we? How common is it for parents to do this little subtle bait and switch with boasting? You know, it's kind of clumsy and awkward and arrogant and just really obvious if I boast about myself, right? But if I boast about my kids? I'm not really boasting about myself. I'm boasting about my kids. They're the thing that I boast in, that I find hope in and meaning in. And so people are constantly slipping in the resumes of their kids. Never forget sitting in a lecture with a pastor, professor, and just made a very passing comment, this guy did, about his kids having gotten straight A's. And it, it wasn't, it didn't even strike, I don't think, anyone in the classroom as a boastful comment. And it was just so in passing. And he moved on. And then about two minutes later, he just stopped. And he said, you know, I'm sorry. You know, a few minutes ago, I drew attention to my children's academic success. And, and that was pride. And I just, I want to repent. I didn't mean, it was just, it was almost 
so unnecessary, it struck us all as just, what's happening here? But I realized, here's a man who recognizes his own propensity for boasting in the success of his family, in the success of his children. And he saw the danger of it. He saw the danger and he repented as quickly as he could. People will boast in athletic prowess. They will boast in former athletic prowess. I used to be an athlete, right? And then there's the next step of people who will boast in the athletic prowess of their team. So not even I used to be an athlete. I cheer for people that are athletes. And that's a real thing of boasting because the people that I cheer for that are athletes are better than people that you cheer for that are athletes. Now, none of them actually know us, but the people I cheer for are better than the people you cheer for. So I get bragging rights. And we laugh about that. But sports is an idol of our culture. People invest hope in it. They insulate themselves from eternity. We can take church size, church affiliation, and make it a grounds for boasting. And against all of this, Paul holds up his example as normative. Paul holds up his life and says, and against all of that, this is what you should look like. And that seems strange, doesn't it? You're saying, don't boast in the flesh. And then Paul says, boast like me. Well, he can say that because he has his eyes turned the right direction. But far be it from me, he says, and he's meaning this as an example to us, to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. For as all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them. So here are the distinctives of those who boast in the right thing, who boast in the cross. First, Paul shows us very clearly, people who boast in the cross, and this makes so much logical sense, are crucified to the world. Which is to say, those who boast in the cross, the place of crucifixion, are crucified to the things of this world that tempt you to boast in the flesh. Those who boast in the cross are crucified to the world. They don't fear the world like the other category does, because they're crucified to it. And they're able to be crucified to it because they've embraced the shame of Jesus for the all-surpassing grace that also comes from Him. Now, boasting in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, that's a thing that's got a significant amount of cultural distance in it. We wear the cross as jewelry. No one did that in Paul's day. You would never think of doing that. You don't boast in the cross. Boasting in the cross is like Boasting in the hangman's noose. The person I love the most got hung. It's like boasting in the electric chair. Maybe try this on for size. Give you a sense of the shame and disgust with which Paul's world held the cross. It'd be like boasting in the abortionist's vacuum and forceps. The tools of execution. That's a vulgar, shameful concept. It's disgusting is what it is. But it gets us close to the cultural stigma that the cross carried. And Paul declares that the cross, with all of its shame, 
all of its dishonor, all of its terrible imagery. That is his boast. And he talks this way because he's put to death his love of the world. He's died to the world because he's been joined to Christ. As Galatians 2.20 puts it, I have been crucified with Christ. I boast in my relationship and my intimacy and my union with the crucified one. It's no longer I who live, but Christ, the crucified one who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself, read, crucified himself for me. I boast in that. The cross for Paul has crushed the need to please men. It's crushed the need to look at the world and seek to measure up according to the world's standards. It's crushed the need to live for the things that the world lives for. And so he can embrace 1 John 2.15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That's the negative. Positive take on that? Don't love the world. Love the cross of Christ. Second characteristic of those who boast in the cross. They're not just dead to the world and the things of the world and things the world boasts in. They're new creations. As verse verse 15 says, For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Now that's a significant statement given Galatians, right? We'd expect him to say, circumcision doesn't account for anything. That's bad theology. But maybe uncircumcision does? You know, standing by the right beliefs, that matters? Paul says no. The old identity markers are gone. The one who boasts in the cross puts all of their confidence in what Christ has done for them. Their confidence doesn't rest in being circumcised or uncircumcised, in being a Jew or being a Gentile. Their confidence doesn't rest in being Baptist or Presbyterian. Their confidence doesn't rest in being Reformed or Arminian. Their confidence rests in Christ. They recognize the law brings no righteousness, but the cross brings new creation. The rule of the present age has zero hold over them because the cross has killed that old man, the old Adam, that wants to live for the world. The curse has been removed by Christ taking the curse upon Himself. And so with this comes the reality and blessing of new creation and new identity. The categories of the past are swept away. And in Christ, new creation and new identity reign. The new creation of the Spirit inaugurates Jesus as a new brother. You become His co-heirs. Jesus. Remember Seth reading in worship from Colossians 1? The nature of who Jesus is. The nature of what His inheritance is. And the Gospel, boasting in the cross of Christ, means that all that inheritance will also be yours. You will be a co-heir with Him. But it's more than just that. Not only do you have Jesus as a co-heir and new brother, you have God as a benevolent Father. God isn't just the almighty and omnipotent, transcendent ruler and creator of the universe. He's now brought near. He's known 
intimately. He's known tenderly. The Father who loves you. The Father who cares for you, who protects you. And with all that, the new inheritance that far exceeds anything the world has to offer. All of these make the new boast of the cross infinitely more precious. Finally, last characteristic Paul shows us. Those who boast in the cross, they're dead to this world, they're new creations, and because they're dead to this world and because they are a new creation, they live for glory. It's not just that they've died to the world, it's that Paul shows us the eternal gain and the joy of living for those things that are eternally glorious. He acknowledged in verse 17, let no one else bring any charges against me. You know, I, I've spent a whole letter dealing with my opponents in Galatia, and I've faithfully and successfully defended my theology. I've defended my gospel. But here, let's just put a point on it. If anyone wants to continue coming after me, let me just show you, my body mark, bears the marks of Jesus, which is Paul just saying, they can bring their accusations, and I'm going to show them my back. I'm going to show them my arms. I'm going to show them my limp. I'm going to show them the way my body has borne the scorn of the cross for the name of Jesus. I've followed Christ, and it's seen in my body. I've known hardship for the sake of the name. And that doesn't diminish my boasting in the cross. I boast all the more boldly because in the cross, I've seen the end of all my own righteousness, Paul says. It's come to an end. It's come to a conclusion because of the nature of the cross. He used to boast, remember in Philippians, of being the Hebrew of Hebrews. He had all these categories of the flesh he could boast in, but because of the cross, they're all wiped away and gone. Now, he says, I bear in my body the reminder. This world has nothing to offer me. This world has brought me hardship and difficulty. And that is nothing to the surpassing greatness of all that Christ is. Hardship and difficulty and persecution and things of this nature only serve to reinforce for Paul, this is not my home. The cross was the world's response to Christ. And so Paul shows that we would not be deterred if we experienced the same. This is only helpful when we recognize the greater calling to live with eternity in sight. If you're not living in light of glory, if you're not living with an eye towards eternity, with an eye towards heaven and the inheritance that waits there, you can't live like Paul. You can't boast in the cross like Paul because it's going to have implications here. It's going to have implications now. And some of them will not be pleasant. It might damage relationships. Jesus says some hard things about family relationships in light of the kingdom of heaven, doesn't he? Your father, your mother, your children, you should love me more. Not that I mean to take them away, but because I'm more valuable. Remember, we're created to worship. That is, we're created to boast. So Paul calls us to live for eternal glory and to boast boldly in Christ and all his benefits. I think he's saying this as well. To not boast is to sin. 
to not boast and live boldly for the cross of Christ is to sin. Hebrews 3.6 But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. New creation. Son. He's your brother. And we are His house. If conditional. Indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. That's an eye towards eternity. It's not enough to be content with the benefits of Christ. I think this is Paul's point. It's not enough to be content with what you've received in salvation. Those things, those benefits, must become our boast. It's not enough to affirm the gospel. If we love the gospel, if we've truly tasted the sweetness of Calvary, we will also, Paul says, boast in it. We will proclaim it to unbelieving neighbors. We will embody it in acts of service. We will teach it and articulate it to our children. We will make sure that they don't assume it and then the next generation forgets it. We will sing it. And we will value and prioritize the singing of it. We will preach it and we will counsel it. And we will boast in it. Even when others scorn us for boasting in that message. It will be our passionate boast because we see that Christ, if He is treasured at all, must also be shared. The cross shows us the length God will go to redeem us. It underscores the infinite ocean of His love and the inexhaustible nature of His grace. And it bids us not just to drink deeply. And it does call us to do that. It also calls us to boast loudly. To live for the glory. To live for eternal glory. By pouring out our lives in faith. Trusting that God will return every sacrifice to us 100-fold in our inheritance to come. To boast in the cross of Christ is to know the infinite satisfaction of Christ being our perfectly sufficient and effective Savior. And then responding. To receive the fullness of Christ is to boast all the more about the nature of that fullness. When I enjoy something... I tell people about it. So a lot of times I tell people about food. You've probably heard me talk about Fogo de Chao, this all-you-can-eat Brazilian steakhouse. I enjoy eating copious amounts of really good meat. And when I do it, and when I've had a near-close experience of Fogo, the likelihood is if I run into you in the next two weeks, you're going to hear me talk about Fogo. You're going to hear me explain why your life is really pathetic if you've never had Fogo. You're going to hear me talk about why spending the money on Fogo, and it is an expensive place to go, is worth it because of all that you get when you go to Fogo. That's because I have tasted and I have experienced the nature of a hunk of beef. And I do that. So what does that say about those who have received and known and tasted the fullness of Christ? To boast about the nature of that fullness. Boasting in Christ is simply the grateful activity of the redeemed to cast a spotlight on the fountain of delights that is Jesus. To proclaim the inexhaustible grace that flows from the cross giving, without measure, living water to all who thirst.
finish this quote by J.C. Ryle. Seek a treasure that cannot be taken from you. Seek a city which has lasting foundations. Do as the Apostle Paul did. Give yourself to Christ and seek an incorruptible crown that fades not away. Come to the Lord Jesus Christ as lowly sinners and He will receive you. If that's you today, if you, you've never tasted, you've never seen, you've never known Him, He stands with open arms. He will pardon you. He will give you His renewing spirit and He will fill you with peace. This shall give you more real comfort than this world has ever done. There is a gulf in your heart which nothing but Christ can fill. And if He has filled it, live in light of it. Live for glory. Boast in the cross. Put your heads. Lord, I ask that you would rip away the things in our life that insulate us from truly living for glory. Lord, that you would help us to accept the blessings that you give to us, Lord, blessings like jobs and families and health and all those things, and to accept them and to be cared for and to see your graciousness in giving them, but to turn them into opportunities to boast in Christ. And with that, Lord, I ask that you would strip away, even if it's painful, that you would strip away those things that distract us from being satisfied in Jesus and from boasting in Him. We want to drink deeply from the fountain of delights. We want to know and be satisfied with the fullness of Christ. We want to consider Calvary the place where all of our infinite deficiencies and sins were met with perfect love and mercy and grace, sacrifice, and the death of the Son of God. And we want to know that and know the grace that comes from that, that we might be fortified to be your faithful, crucified to this world, living for glory, boasting only in the cross, people. We want to be new creations who in recognizing our status as a new creation, joyfully and willingly become your ambassadors. all of that here at Providence now. Stir those desires up in us. Help us to walk out of here and find men and women to hold us accountable to it. To ask us, how? Where? What, what does boasting look like for you? How are you afraid to boast? Jesus, we want to hold your name high and glorify it. And we want to put all our hope in your eternal reward in the hope of seeing you face to face. Praise in your name, Jesus.